All right. Uh, today we are continuing our series, God Space, Part 2. The title of today's message is Kingdom Sight. And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 20. If you could turn there, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 20. Our prayer has always been that God would save people in our services or through our services. That what God does here today and, and what God is building up in us uh, in our time this weekend together as the different services have gathered uh, is equipping the saints for works of service, as it says in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. That we could go out as healed people, healed by Christ, healed by the gospel. And we could go out and demonstrate the love of God in word and in deed and, and make the most of every opportunity for the days are evil, as it says in Scripture. So last week we talked about engaging the mission and today kingdom sight. So if you're in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 20, you can follow along. I'm reading out of the ESV translation. Verse 16. From now on, Paul writes to the church, Therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And at the reading of God's word, we say amen. So this series is based on this book by Doug Pollock, God space. And what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to kind of break down this, this scripture text to encourage us from the scriptures. And then I'm going to apply that with some things that Doug Pollock taught in the book that I think can be practical and helpful when we're talking about reaching out to people for Christ, evangelism, mission. So first of all, from the text, a few things that I think we need to understand from the text. Again, the title of today's message is Kingdom Sight. So there's a few things that I think God wants us to see from this text. Number one, he wants us to understand the kingdom. He wants us to see the kingdom of God, to look at this world with kingdom eyes and not merely natural eyes. And it's very easy to look through natural eyes. I know myself, I've got to be careful how much um, Ben Shapiro I ingest. I love Ben. I love Ben. Love his stuff, right? But if I listen to Ben Shapiro all day, I can start getting away from kingdom sight. And I need to remember, okay, God is sovereign. God is in control. <clears throat> you know, God is on his throne. God works all things for the good. God works all things after the counsel of his own will. So I got to get, get myself like back into that eternal perspective, that gospel perspective, and marry that to, you know, maybe some of those type of conversations that are going on in culture and society. We need to have kingdom vision and see the kingdom as we look out into the world. There's a greater reality around us. And so Paul says this, we regard no one according to the flesh. What is he saying there? What does it mean to regard someone according to the flesh? It means you see them with only with fleshly eyes. They're just sort of, they're just sort of uh, part of the landscape of your world as you sort of mark time and go to work and get the things done that you need to do. And, and we just, we look at people without spiritual eyes. Like, Maybe they're even your friend or there's somebody you know, but instead of looking at them as maybe God wants to reach this person, maybe God wants to save this person, maybe we look at them instead like, well, what can this person do for me? Or what does this person provide for me in my, in my life context? 
And so when we, get, we, when we begin to see with kingdom eyes and we stop looking at people according to the flesh, we see the kingdom. I remember Jim Elliott used to say, um, I would that everybody I meet would run into a crossroads. In other words, when I walk in the room, I have this mentality, maybe, just maybe, there's somebody in this room that just ran into their eternal destiny because I walked in. Not that he has a high view of himself, but that he represents Christ and that maybe he's going to encounter somebody for Christ and he's going to have an impact on them for Christ. And that's what it means not to see people according to the flesh, but to see them with kingdom eyes and to look at everything and everyone with kingdom eyes. Not what they can do for us, you know, not what they're providing for us, not just that they're part of the landscape of, of life and I sort of just tolerate them or, you know, uh, just, you know, I'm courteous to them and, you know sort of coexist with people, but Lord, how can you use me here? That was a, a question that um, my senior worker in Africa, Granger Angel, challenged me with when I was with him. He said, I want to give you a good habit in your life. He said, everywhere you go, everywhere you are, stop and ask God the question, how can you use me here? That changed my life. And I've never forgotten that since 1989 till now. Everywhere I go, I'm, Lord, how can you use me here? And so we need to understand and see the kingdom. And once you see it, it's hard to, to unsee it. You know, we've used this illustration before. I don't know if we have that, that FedEx logo. But there's a, there's a little hidden symbol in the FedEx logo. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Sorry to uh, cause you to see something you won't unsee now. You see the E and the X there between the E and the X? Did you ever see the arrow there? That little arrow? It's white, white arrow. How many of you, that's the first time you saw it? All right. Oh, wow. We just converted half the room. Now, every time you see, every time you see it, you can't not see it now. Watch this. I'll prove it to you. Don't see the arrow anymore. Go back to the old. Not able to do that, right? Because now you see it. And that's what it's like with the kingdom. We don't look according to the flesh. We don't see the world with fleshly eyes anymore. We see the kingdom of God everywhere. God is working. God is moving. And maybe this person God strategically put in my life so I could reach them for Christ. Okay. So God wants us to understand and see the kingdom. The second thing he wants us to see here and to understand here is the mission. So understand the kingdom. Number two, understand the mission. And the mission is called reconciliation. Very powerful gospel concept. So we can't just talk about mission, reaching people, evangelism, sharing Christ, unless we really grasp the problem. And hidden in this word reconciliation is the problem. Because if you don't understand the problem, you won't understand the mission. Now, my boys and I recently went through some of the Mission Impossible movies with uh, Tom Cruise. In every movie, the main character, Ethan Hunt, gets his mission. But before he gets the mission, a dire situation is laid out for him. You know, where, I don't know, he's like in a convenience store and he gets this little, you know, disposable camera and he looks in it and, you know, you hear that little voice, Ethan Hunt, you know, the, the syndicate has done, whatever, destroying the world and they've got this big plan, you know, and this whole terrible situation, this like potentially like, like world shaking, you know, city decimating problem is, is like presented to him. And then your mission, if you choose to accept it, and then of course this will destruct in five seconds. And so 
he has to see the problem. And so do we. You have to see the problem before you can grasp the mission, before you're passionate about the mission. You have to kind of grasp the weight of the problem. And Paul uses this word, reconciliation. God lays out the dire situation for us when he uses this word, reconciliation. And it's a strong word that implies bringing enemies together and restoring peace between them. Enemies. We're not talking about like friends who had a little dispute. We're talking about enemies that are brought together, reconciled into a place of peace. And so my question is, from the text, do you believe that the world is at enmity with God? Do you believe your friends and loved ones are enemies of God if they are not in Christ? Kind of doesn't matter what I think. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that the wrath of God is upon mankind. The righteous wrath of God is upon mankind. Everybody you know, everybody you love that is outside of Christ is in the crosshairs of the wrath of God because of sin in the world. Now, some people would hear me say that and go, you know what? That is exactly what I hate about religion. That's exactly what I hate about the concept of God. How can you say something like that? Well, first of all, I didn't say it. Okay, I don't know if you know, you can look in your Bible. I didn't write it. None of the elders here wrote it. None of the believers or members here wrote it. Not, not your favorite teacher, not your favorite Christian author. Okay, We don't get to make up truth and make up what we uh, say or, or, or we don't get to make up what God is like. God is who he is and we simply describe him and we describe the state of things as he describes them. And the scriptures are clear that the world is at enmity with God. I didn't say that. The Bible is very clear on that. But the second thing that I want to suggest to you to maybe ask you to consider thinking about it a little differently. Because I think sometimes when we're talking about the idea of anger, like God's anger and God's wrath, sometimes the thing that people hate actually springs from his love. After all, the, the, the Bible picture of God ultimately terminates on the idea of his love, and that is his love that motivates him to move toward his enemies. Yeah, I mean, the picture is God gave us life. God gave us everything, everything in your life you enjoy, your family, the roof over your head, food, the breath in your lungs, right? the freedoms that we enjoy, the creation that's all around us. God gave all of that to you and to me. And yet we were born in rebellion against him. We were born with an instinct to commit high treason against heaven by usurping his throne and wanting to rule our own lives and save ourselves. And from birth, we do it. And instead of God throwing a lightning bolt at this world, instead, God reached out his hand to the world and we pierced it. And so the scripture says, God so loved the world that he gave the son. And the Bible says it is the kindness of God that leads us to turn to him in repentance. And so it is the love of God that, that motivates him to move. His, his anger and love are one. We don't have to pit the idea and say, well, is God uh, full of wrath and anger or is God a God of love? He's kind of both. He is both. We don't pit those ideas against one another. Those ideas establish one another. If your friend was an addict ruining their life with drugs, or if a loved one was an addict, ruining their, life, their lives with drugs or alcoholism, you'd, you'd get upset about that. Why? 
Because it matters to you. That person matters to you. And it bothers you to see them ruining their lives with drugs. And it bothers you to see them ruining their lives with alcohol. And so you'd probably reach out to them and say, stop, please stop. You're driving yourself away from our family. You're driving yourself away from your community. You're losing who you once were. Please, I hate it. I hate it. Please stop. That's what, in my experience, working with people in that community and the loved ones around them, that's the very thing. It's, it's this, this anger toward this, this sin in their life, this self-destructive behavior that rises up and causes them to move toward that person. Not away. That's the picture of God, and that's the picture of reconciliation. That's the picture of his love. There's a lot more I could say about God's wrath, but I'm just going to say one thing. And I'll say it the way Nate said it this morning. Calvary. The cross. The cross says everything you need to know about the real state of the world as it relates to God. How fallen are we? Apparently so fallen and so sinful that the Son of God himself needed to die for us. How desperate is our case? Apparently the only solution was for God to handle it himself, coming to this world and dying at the hands of men for us. Now, in light of all that, if we're really not that bad, if we're really not under the wrath of God and we're really, really not in that big of trouble, what's the point of the cross? Why all the blood? If that was not necessary, Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers said, God never attempts anything that is unnecessary. In other words, we needed the cross. The reason the cross happened is because we needed it to happen. It was God's solution. It was God reaching out to us in love. You know, for years, years back when I was involved in, in a lot of uh, traveling evangelism and we, we'd go out into the streets and share Christ in different contexts and um, in, in some of those contexts, we'd use that two-question test. If you died right now and had to stand before God, would he accept you? And then let them answer. And then the next question is why? Whether they say yes or no, right? Would God accept you? Uh, yes, why? No, why? Most people in America <laughs> say yes. And when you ask them why, like 98 out of 100 people say some version of I'm a good person. Right? It'll come out in different ways, right? Well, I, you know, I, I've, yeah, I've done some bad stuff, but, you know, I'm, I'm, get, I'm doing okay now. You know, I, I could be a lot worse, or I'm better than the next person. Or, or, or they'll just, like, appeal to God's mercy, you know, outside of, outside of Christ in a way, like, you know, like God sort of will give them a pass on, the, on their mistakes, as if they're not making ongoing mistakes. But, yeah, I've done some bad stuff, but, you know... If there's a God, I'm sure he's merciful and, you know, he'll give me a pass. And yet, God is good. And because God is good, God is also a God of justice. Because someone who is good enforces and implements justice. That's what we hope judges do in the United States, is follow the law and, and enforce justice. And if they didn't, they wouldn't be a good judge. They wouldn't be a good person. And unfortunately, we also have a lot of that going on in our country, too. But God's not like that. He is good. He is loving, but he's also just. And so he, he punishes sin. And so I'd always say to the people, well, if, if what you just said is true, if, if basically your goodness is enough, if you could just, you, you tip the scales your way, you, you did just enough good deeds that you finally tip the scales your way, 
I'd say, what's the, why would all the violence of the cross, why, what's the point? Because according to your standards, there were people who were good before he came, and there were people who were good after he came. You literally just made the cross of Christ, which the Bible says is the most incredible, powerful, loving, holy act in the history of the world, and you literally made it absolutely meaningless. The cross was necessary. I think a lot of people think like, uh, they, they think of... Um, our relationship to God, you know, by comparison, you know, like God grades on a curve somehow. Well, you know, I'm not as bad as Hitler, uh, not as bad as that serial killer I read about in the news, or I'm not as bad as that person, you know, that guy, you know, that I go to school with or that person at work. I'm not as bad as them, you know, as if, um, the way I think the way we think about it is like, if you're in the woods and there's a bear chasing you, um, you only have to be fast enough to run faster than the slowest person in the group in order to be okay. And that's kind of how we think about judgment and, and God is as long as I'm faster than the slowest guy, you know, the, the bear will get that one and, and I'll be all right. And yet God's standard is not the slowest person. God's standard is his holiness and his righteous law. And that's why the only way of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, not by works. So we conclude as we've concluded a hundred times here before. And I was fellowshipping with a brother this week and and I was glad to hear it come out of his mouth. I'm more wicked than I ever dared believe. And yet I'm more loved than I ever dared hope at the very same time. We've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. The wrath of God has been propitiated. That means propitiation is a wrath-removing sacrifice. And Jesus propitiated for our sin with his sacrifice. He removed the wrath by taking it on himself. God saved us from God. God saved us from God's wrath. Only he could do it. That's the message of reconciliation. And the Bible says God is making his appeal through us. We are his mouthpiece. We're saying to the world, be reconciled to God. But we have to understand this dire situation. Then we understand the the solution. Then we understand the message. Then we understand the mission. And so in this text here, I think Paul is, is, is wanting us to see the kingdom, to understand the kingdom, to understand the mission by understanding what reconciliation is. And finally, the third thing in the text I think that God wants us to understand the call. What's the call? Love the word that's used here. That we're ambassadors for Christ. Do you understand what an ambassador does? I'll give you a definition of it. An accredited diplomat sent by a country as its official representative to a foreign country. That's you. That's me. We're ambassadors for Christ. We are accredited diplomats sent from a foreign country here to represent our sovereign country in this land of our sojourn, this land of our pilgrimage. First, a few things about an ambassador. First, an ambassador doesn't have a personal agenda. It would be a lousy ambassador who went to a foreign country that was having tension with the United States and said, well, yeah, I'm an ambassador from the United States and our president wants peace with you, but I think you and I both know where this is going. And I think I'd prefer to go to war with you. I mean, that would not be a good ambassador. He is not to say uh, anything that comes from his own plans or agenda. He, he goes 
as a representative to this other country to say what his president told him to say. And so second, an ambassador is a representation of his sovereign as if the sovereign himself or herself is in that country. So in other words, if I say it as an ambassador, my president said it. If I'm kind, then in their eyes, my sovereign is kind. We, in that way, represent Jesus for good or for bad. And this can go very well and this can go very poorly. There's, there's stories of people representing Christ well and, and how that draws people to God. And there's also stories of people who wear the name Christian and yet have not represented God well. And, and that, is, that has driven people in some ways away from God. So we, we have to understand, like, whether you, whether you uh, embrace this or not, it is, it is a scriptural fact that if you bear the name Christian, Christian, if you bear the name of Christ, you do represent him to people and they will look at you as a representation of Jesus, as a representation of our faith. And then Paul, finally in verse 17 tells us who God has trusted this message and ministry with. We're going to read verse, a little bit of verse 17 and go back to verse 19. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anyone, if anyone is in Christ, and in verse 19, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He also says earlier in the text, entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. So whoever the us is in this text has... A, a ministry from God of being an ambassador and of being entrusted with the, the ministry and message of reconciliation. So I guess it's important to find out who's us. Is this just for like a small elite special ops group of Christians who are like the radical you know, missionaries and evangelists? Well, I, heard, I just read verse 17 that begins this text that I read. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, oh, who's the us? The us is the anyone that's in Christ. The anyones have the, me- the ministry and message of reconciliation. And it's a joy. We get to share in our Father's business. We get to be a part of what God's doing. And you know, maybe you go, man, I wish I'd done more for Christ. I wish I could do more for God. And I, I haven't done enough. The plain fact is, because of the message of grace, the fact that God can do anything through us, He can save us, from that state of rebellion, that state of enmity with him, bring us into his family, bring us into his kingdom. And the fact that he can do anything for us is a beautiful thing. That's why David says in the Old Testament, I'll be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. It's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. So, you know, whether we're a doorkeeper, whether we're in the back or the, or the front, or, you know, whether our ministry is, is frontline or ministry is supportive, we get to be a part of what God is doing. So let's embrace this call and this ministry with joy. Okay, now let's move to some practical things here from, from the book, God Space. How can we engage in this mission? I think there's some really good things that Pollock shares here in this book. And um, just, a, just a couple things. Number one, Pollock says, notice your way. Notice your way into the mission. We need spiritual eyes. Okay, we have to put our Jesus glasses on. We need kingdom sight, right? Put those Jesus glasses on. They probably look a little better than this. 
Oh, wow, look at that. I see with Christ's eyes now. Going back to the first point of not looking at anyone according to the flesh. I'm going to put my Jesus glasses on and I'm going to notice my way into the lives of people and notice my way into the mission. Matthew 9, verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, that famous verse, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see what it says there in the beginning? When he saw the crowds. Of course, Jesus always looked with kingdom eyes. And he immediately had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. And if you're like me, I kind of like vacillate. Some days I'm like, man, I don't like people at all. Just get me away from people. Right? Other days I'm like, oh, I love people. God loves people. I want to reach people. Right? Jesus lived there all the time. And he looks out at the crowds and he has compassion on them. In John 4.35, he puts it on us to look at the crowds with the same way, to look at people the same way when he says, do you not say there are four months and then comes a harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes. I love that. Lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white. Lift up your eyes. Get your eyes off of just your little small world that you live in. Look up and notice people. He says, don't say the harvest is four months away. It's now. Just look up. Look around. Notice. Noticing leads to caring. There's this great little story I'm going to read from uh, Godspace. Pollock writes, the following story submitted to the doable website, I'm sorry, the doable evangelism website illustrates this point of noticing. The person says, I work at a local community college and often buy lunch in the cafeteria. When I first encountered the lunch lady, she was taking my money. I noticed, I noticed that she had a short gray hair the kind, and the kind of fingernail polish that changes according to the holiday. I also noticed that her name tag said Dottie. The next week, I told her I liked her nails, and I noticed that she had a bad chest cold. I prayed for her health, but I didn't mention my prayer to her. The following week, I asked her how her cold was. She said she wasn't getting better, and she was worried because she is a breast cancer survivor. She was afraid that the cancer might have come back. It was two more weeks before I saw Miss Dottie again. When I asked how she was, she said the doctors had told her the cancer was back. We teared up together, and I promised to pray for her. The next week, I brought Miss Dottie a present. It was a book called Thanks for the Mammogram. It is a book on facing cancer with faith, hope, and humor. I also gave her a card thanking her for always being there to smile at me, and I offered to go to treatment with her sometime. She grabbed my hand and said, thank you so much. Then she asked me to come around to the other side of the booth and give her a hug. Later, little Miss Dottie, I'm sorry, later Miss Dottie had to quit her job due to her cancer. Our faith community wrote a We Love Miss Dottie fundraiser, uh, hosted a We Love Miss Dottie fundraiser, and raised over $1,000 for her family. She was astonished that strangers would care for her in this way. I'm grateful to God that I noticed Miss Dottie. God has planted her firmly in my heart, and I can't stop praying for her. Amen. So we notice our way. Number two, we serve our way. Serve our way into the mission. Serve our way into the lives of people. 
So the idea is we preach the gospel in word and in deed, in our actions, that our actions also preach in some way. 19th century author C.N. Bovey wrote, Kindness is a language the dumb can speak and the deaf can hear and understand. Kindness is a language the dumb can speak and the deaf can hear and understand. Theologian William Barclay said, More people have been brought into the church by the kindness of real Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. There's a pastor in Cincinnati named Steve Joran, and um, his church has a, has a very strong emphasis on servant evangelism. He wrote a book called Servant Evangelism. Very uh, inspiring and, and challenging and encouraging. And he tells a lot of stories in the book. And one of the stories he tells is about how he and some of, his, uh, you know, church, uh, some of the church members there went on a toilet cleaning outreach. Into, the, uh, into one of the plazas. So they grabbed their toilet cleaning kits and they went in, they just go in and say, hey, we're just out cleaning toilets today. Can we clean your toilet? And uh, they went into this one furniture store and the lady's like, sure, it's in the back. And they go clean the toilets and, and while they're doing it, you know, the pastor's standing there and, and, and she says, uh, uh, why are you doing this? And he said, well, the Bible says, uh, Jesus said it's better to give than to receive and we just wanted to demonstrate God's love to you in a practical way today by, by giving. Okay? She just keeps watching clean the toilets. As they're leaving, she says, can I talk to you for a second? He says, sure. She said, you know, as I saw you cleaning the toilets, you know, I just, my life is really messed up. I'm going through a divorce and there's all this stuff happening. She said, as I saw you cleaning the toilets, a question popped into my mind. And the question was, would a broken person like me fit in at a church like yours? He said, well, why don't you come and find out? I think you would. And she came to Christ. She became part of the church and, and uh, doing servant evangelism herself. He says, Joran says, servant evangelism is taking the initiative to demonstrate God's love in practical ways by offering to do random acts of kindness in Christ's name with no strings attached. I love that. And I think the idea is, yes, God looks at the heart. But people look at what's going on on the outside. Outsiders define us by what we do, ultimately, not by what we say or believe. You could say or believe something, but ultimately, outsiders will look at a distance, they'll, they'll watch from a distance, and they'll see if your behavior matches your confession. So we serve our way in the name of Jesus. Number three, we listen our way. We listen our way into the mission and into the lives of people. Most of the time, listeners are seen as safe and compassionate. And nothing creates God space faster than spirit-led listening. It's, it's almost like listening with your ears. Now, I'm a dude, and I know other dudes don't like listening to directions. And whether it's the, the old days of the Atlas, put that thing away. Or cell phone GPS, I know where I'm going. We don't like listening directions. And yet, if you listen to people, they're telling us how to reach them as we engage in conversation with them. Todd Hunter, president of Alpha USA, says, quote, I'd be willing to bet the farm that in our postmodern society, the most important evangelistic skill is listening. He goes on, people used to listen, or listen to their way into the kingdom. Today, people are more apt to observe and talk their way into it. So, 
failing to observe the signs socially, not being a good listener. As it, in the natural, right? If you fail to look at the signs, if you fail to follow their directions, it'll take you off course and sometimes irreparably lost. And we'd lose an opportunity. We'd lose the opportunity to uh, have an impact on someone that we might have had. Okay. So we notice our way. We serve our way. We listen our way. And finally, we, we wonder our way. You wonder your way with them toward the kingdom of God. So be a good listener and be a good question asker. Pollock says being a good question asker is one of the most powerful ways to awaken the heart. Ask questions that help people wonder their way to God with you. Good questions invite people to search for answers, look in the mirror and wrestle with contradictions. And when you're, inspi- when you're invited to speak, be brief. No, no, this, this is my opportunity. I'm going to begin a series on Book of Romans with you now. And here we go. <laughs> chill, just chill, just chill. Be brief. This just happened with me yesterday at the, at the uh, state wrestling tournament that I was at. You know, I was listening and asked some pressing questions and it's that, that, you know, that interaction happening and just listening, uh, spirit-led listening and spirit-led questions. Doug Pollack calls that idea riding God's teeter-totter. We have to balance spirit-led questions and spirit-led comments or answers. And he says, if you spend too much time listening, then you become the grand therapist. You know, ah, say more. Well, tell me more. Really? Is that so? So we don't want to, you know, put that vibe out. And, and then if you ask too many questions, you become the grand inquisitor, like they're under investigation or something. But it's good to listen to the Holy Spirit as we're listening to the person and observing their life and say, Lord, is there a spirit-led question you can give me for this person? I remember when I was in uh, Turkey, we were invited into a, uh, uh, the home of some Turkish Muslims and we, they're very hospitable and um, very welcoming, uh, had a beautiful evening together. And, and I'm sitting there going, Lord, is there a spirit-led question that, that you can give me to, to help open the door to conversation? With these people. And so I, I asked, Can I ask you a question? I said, Sure. I said, What do you like most about Islam? <laughs> what do you like the most about it? And it was a, I don't know if anybody had ever asked them that before. I don't think they had, because they were sort of like looking at each other like, uh, What do we like about Islam? Well, we were, we, we were just kind of born into it, and we have to be Muslims. It's just a thing here. And, I don't know if we really like it. <laughs> I said, oh. I said, well, I'm a Christian. I, I said, can I tell you what I like about my faith? Yes, I'd like to hear this. In Turkey, it's not like America. You know, don't talk about politics and religion. They, they want to talk about spiritual things. And, and uh, he had a very wonderful conversation about the Lord. Not long ago, I had a, uh, a handyman at my house as we were getting our house ready for, for selling it. And a uh, real nice guy and... Um, uh, he was just asking me questions about, you know, my life and what we're going to do in, in, in Tennessee. And, of course, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor. You know, it's funny when you're a pastor sometimes. Uh, I don't know. There's stereotypes around that. But there's also this, like, expectation that you're going to, you know, you're going you're gonna to bring in the hammer. You know, like, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. Oh. I'm like, so you want to do this now? 
<laughs> so I'm talking to this guy, and uh, you know, it, it was good. He, he wasn't too spooked, and and, and I said, uh, I just asked him. I said, "Are you a church-going man? Are you a church-going man?" And then he he began to share with me about how he'd grown up in, you know, mainline denominational dead religion, and 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 how. Uh, this bad experience he had, and then, and then he was involved in this other church that's very legalistic, and, and he was drawn to God, but not drawn to dead religion, and so he's sort of in this caught in this limbo place, but just by asking him that question, he just began to open this, this door, this little box in his heart, where he does have thoughts about his spiritual life, or I might say, tell me about your spiritual experiences, or what do you think is wrong with the world? These different questions we can ask that can help open spiritual doors. Uh, there's another uh, really, really great story uh, from the book here. I'm gonna, I'll close by reading that. So uh, Pollock and some of the people in his ministry decided to go, they basically asked the question, what's the hardest place to do evangelism around here? And they determined it was a local college. They said, let's go try and they decided, if we're going to do that, uh, let's do some acts of kindness to try to open the door. And so it was a hot day, and they brought some cold drinks. And that's where we pick up the story. One girl looked at me and said, why are you doing this? I explained that when I was in college, somebody had demonstrated God's love to me in a practical way, and it changed my life. I told her that the free drinks were just a tangible reminder of God's love, no strings attached. She fired another question. Who's God? I replied, The God who changed my life. She loaded her gun again. What religion are you? I responded, I hate religion. Religion is a bunch of man-made rituals and traditions designed to change you from the outside in. I'm talking about true spirituality, where God takes up residence inside of you and changes you from the inside out. Oh, that's cool, she said. I immediately hopped up on God's teeter-totter and began to ask questions. I wondered what had compelled them to choose this school in the middle of nowhere to pursue their college education. Each of them had fascinating stories to share, but the bottom line was Antioch College offered them a safe place to be in community with other people who valued being open-minded. I wondered if the school had met their expectations for open-mindedness. Interestingly enough, all of them were disappointed. They said that the school was open-minded to a point, but very close-minded toward middle-class folks living in the suburbs. I asked them if they felt it was ever okay to close their minds to something. Got, that got them thinking about the bigger implications of what they were saying. As an example, I brought up the subject of love, and I asked if they thought it was okay to close their minds to things like racism, genocide, and other forms of hatred, which are polar opposites of love. This wondering question sensitively pushed them toward the edge of seeing their worldview for what it was. I could tell they were beginning to grasp the, inconsistency of the, the inconsistencies of their most cherished value. While they were teetering, I decided it was time to push them over the edge. In the spirit of Dr. Phil, I asked how the value of open-mindedness was working out for them in their relationships. I shared the following example to illustrate what I was getting at. If you were in a committed love relationship and your, and your partner turned to you one day and said, I'd like you to stay open-minded about something. You know that I love you, but I also have two other girls and one other guy I love as well. There, he, there was a, a transvestite in the group and, and uh, some homosexuals. I want to make sure that you're open-minded enough to share with me these three other people. 
How would that make you feel? The question nearly threw everybody into cardiac arrest. One by one, they began sharing their stories about broken relationships. My wondering questions had penetrated a main artery. I asked them to define the kind of love they hoped to find in a long-term meaningful relationship. I was shocked to hear them grapple for a coherent definition of a word they all desperately longed to experience. It sounded as if they were saying that love is a feeling that you're going to feel when you have a feeling you haven't felt before. Sound confusing? I thought so. I asked them if I could toss out a definition for them to consider. They told me to go for it. I define love for them this way. Love is a commitment you make to act in someone else's best interest. Love can only be known by the actions that it prompts. They all looked at me as if I were Jesus delivering the Beatitudes to the masses. They were stunned by how much sense this definition made. It was time for me to bring the Bible into the conversation. The last thing I wanted to do was leave them with the impression that I had figured out all this by myself. I said, that's my definition of love, but I know of one that's far better than that. Could I read it for you? It comes from the Bible. I pulled out my cell phone and looked up 1 Corinthians 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. After each one of them read it, one of the guys said, that's the best definition I've ever read. One of the young ladies exclaimed, that's cool. And the rest of the group chimed in with positive responses as well. Just riding God's teeter-totter. So we notice our way. We serve our way. We listen our way and we wonder our way as we engage in this ministry and message of reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, you told us in that text that we read a few minutes ago, the harvest is plentiful and the labors are few. Therefore, pray. So we're doing that now. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up laborers for his harvest field. And even as we pray that, Lord, we feel a little push on the back. Lord, we offer ourselves first. Help us, Lord. Help us to know the joy of reaching souls for Christ. Your word says in the Old Testament, he who wins souls is wise. Help us, Lord, to be wise. Because when we're talking about souls, we're talking about eternal things and eternally valuable things. So while, Lord, we need to work hard and pursue um, pursue provision for our families and and uh, while we need to, you know, it's good to engage in different activities and things we're doing. Let us not neglect this one great, beautiful activity of winning souls and being engaged in mission. Show us, Lord, how we can engage. I pray, Lord, again, Lord, even as we prayed last week for people in our lives that don't know you, Lord, that they'd come to know you. And Lord, help us to notice our way, serve our way, wonder our way into the lives of people. Listen our way. Help us, Lord, to learn this idea of this God's teeter-totter, spirit-led listening and spirit-led questions. Give us ears to hear in that context. Help us not to be nervous, but just at ease that you are with us. And you actually told us, don't be afraid if you're brought before rulers and authorities what to say. I'll tell you what to say in that moment. Lord, we thank you that you're able even to do that. Bless my brothers and sisters. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody in here who does not know Christ, who has not placed faith in Christ for salvation, I pray today, Lord, that you would just give them that give them that grace to just finally look at heaven and see a friend, to look at the cross and see a solution, 
and see hope. I pray, Lord, that you'd help them to just very simply believe and receive as a gift the salvation that you have given. And if that, if that is you today, I want to encourage you as this worship begins in a moment, in your own words, just turn to God and say, I believe that the cross was for me. I believe that Jesus is the Son and the cross was for me. In your own words, something like that, just turn to the Lord and welcome Him into your life as you place faith in Him. So bless this time of closing worship, Lord. Let our, let our hearts be full of the Holy Spirit. Let our mouth be full of the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.